Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. And this is GM GM from from Decrypt. All right, Jeff, we got Eric Voorhees today. I'm pretty pumped to talk to him. Talk about like a true crypto OG. Oh, yeah, this is going to be a good one, Dan. Eric Voorhees, one of my favorite people in crypto, a really original thinker, been around since 2010. He's got some really remarkable ideas and also just a really nice guy. So let's let's get to it. Yeah. And and by the way, I mean, just quick story on Voorhees. Like, I associate him with the very, very beginning of crypto. I remember when New York State developed the bit license and everyone was so angry and it was truly Voorhees and maybe Jesse Powell of Kraken, who right away, instead of just complaining about what was in the bit license, they basically said, well, that's it. We'll just leave New York. We won't operate in New York anymore. Oh, yeah. He walks the walk. I mean, also back in the day, he was part of the New Hampshire Free Stater movement. You know, this group of people who wanted to move to a small state and take it over and make it purely libertarian. You know, again, I don't. And you live right beside New Hampshire, Dan. I'm not sure how much you'd go for that. But as I said, I mean, he really is the real deal. It's great to do Eric after we did Sam Bankman fried because even though, you know, there's some similarities, it feels to me like FTX is kind of in the corporate crypto sense. And then Shapeshift, which went full DAO, is now like going full Web3. Yeah. And Eric just fired himself as CEO of Shapeshift to become like a DAO member, you know, so like right on. I love it. All right, let's get into it. We'll bring him on. All right, Eric Voorhees, GM, thanks for joining us. GM, thanks for having me on. Welcome, welcome. Well, there's so much we want to talk with you about, and we had good fun with you a a while back in Boulder, Colorado, at one of our Decrypt dinners. So much to get into, but let's just start this way. You know, it's the beginning of a new year, 2021, as Jeff and I have both written and said a lot, arguably, I think, hard to argue with, biggest year for crypto yet. I mean, feels like crypto went more mainstream in 2021 than ever before. When you look at that year, what were your top level takeaways, your highlights? What do you think were the most important things that happened for the space in 2021? So I agree that 2021 was, you know, biggest and best year ever. Usually that's going to be the case because whenever you get an ascending technology, you know, like you should expect that each year is generally the most exciting one yet. I think, you know, on the on the Bitcoin side, Tons of progress was made with the Lightning Network development and El Salvador adopting Bitcoin as a reserve currency is monumental. I mean, it, it's it's going to be one of those things that people look back on as like one of the key milestones. Really cool experiment that's starting there. And I think more broadly, it's clear that that crypto generally has gone beyond like a, a niche technology. And I think whereas a few years ago, people would be I don't know, embarrassed if they knew a lot about crypto. Today, I think people are more embarrassed if they don't know much about crypto. It's becoming like a a requirement if you're going to speak intelligently on finance and markets and technology. So it is just continuing to, you know, creep into the public consciousness 
Um, certainly the NFT phenomenon is incredibly notable for 2021 um, and and notable not just because it's a new branch of cryptocurrency, but it is it, it was really like a way of pulling in culture. And so it's not just about like finance and spreadsheets and charts, but finally culture is merging with with crypto and blockchain assets. So um, yeah, huge year and can't can't wait to see what happens in 22. Yeah, Eric, it's Jeff. I have a hard time disagreeing with any of that. Just, you know, crypto and popular culture. And also just the amount of like high school students and college people who are like fluent in crypto. It's like the majority of that generation, I think, is really a good sign. But just for fun, I think, yeah, no one can disagree that 2021 was crypto's biggest year ever. But just for fun, what were crypto's other two biggest years? I think I, I have two in my mind. Uh, 2017, obviously. That was, you know, the last the last real bubble. And before that, I mean, it it must must be twenty, maybe twenty twenty. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to think twenty thirteen or twenty twenty. I was going to go twenty thirteen because remember, Bitcoin broke a thousand, and you know, it's never going to be mm. that high again. Yeah, and that that was important, but just the scale was still so small. Twenty twenty was amazing in that it had this you know just dramatic sell off right as COVID hit. And it was yet another time when all the skeptics and haters could say, you know, see, this stuff is nonsense. It's it's just a bubble. It's going to go to zero. It gave people every reason to just be dismissive of it. And within a couple months, it had totally clawed back all that value and went on to, to hit all-time highs later that year. So 2020 and 2021 together are really, it's really been a, a profound, profound couple of years for, for every everyone in this space. Yeah, it was also a profound year for Shapeshift too. I mean, I think you're one of the first to Shapeshift. The company no longer exists, right? So tell us a little bit about that and what what went on behind the scenes and how it's going. Yeah. So, well, in late 2019, we decided we would start integrating decentralized exchanges into Shapeshift. And late 2020, we decided to do that. And then early 2021, we actually decided we were going to decentralize the entire company. And this was done for a number of reasons. Most fundamentally, it was it was decided because it put it puts us in line with how cryptocurrency is supposed to work. Cryptocurrency is best when it is decentralized, immutable, borderless, permissionless, open source. Those are like its fundamental principles. And any centralized company that doesn't share those principles is going to be at odds with the ethos of cryptocurrency. And that's not necessarily a a non-starter, but we felt like that was the right move for us. So what it meant is that the whole second half of 2021, we were dismantling the Shapeshift Corporation. So it's you know this international company with multiple subsidiaries, bank accounts, contracts, employees, all of that corporate structure was dismantled. And in parallel, we built a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization. And that DAO has, has no center. It has no CEO. It has no employees. It has no bank accounts. It has no office. It is truly a decentralized organization of people that want to contribute to it. So that was being built in parallel to the corporation being dismantled. And now in 2022, that DAO is, is shapeshift. And so we have transitioned into that structure. I think we're the first you know, established company to, to do that. There are a lot of, there are a lot of DAOs and there are a number of companies that have decentralized products, 
but we decentralize the whole thing. And so we're just kind of trying to pioneer that. And it's been going awesome so far. It, it's really exciting. And and Eric, I mean, let's drill down with DAOs. First of all, how did Shapeshift employees react to that? You know, hey guys, it's not gonna be a company anymore. It's gonna be a DAO. And then we've obviously covered the rise of DAOs. It's been so interesting, but you know, they're imperfect for now. There's still some real maturing to be done. And what I've been saying lately, and I'm interested in your thoughts, the acronym itself to me seems like a little bit of a misnomer. I mean, the A, autonomous, they're not autonomous. Uh, you know, when Ethereum came along, I think we thought that's what we would see is completely autonomous organizations where you set the code, then you leave it alone and it just runs itself. But in DAOs, people vote, you know, for governance. It, it's human beings voting. So they're not autonomous. And then, of course, they eventually decentralized, but they're not decentralized from the start because someone created them. Someone's the founder. Someone's the leader. So what are the sort of issues there as, as DAOs mature and what did Shapeshift employees think? Yeah, I, I agree. The, the A is problematic. You know, the Shapeshift DAO is not autonomous. It is decentralized, but I don't know like a better term. And, and that term has stuck so well that I don't know if it's going to change. Autonomous should really be reserved for like the realm of smart contracts themselves. Those, mm. those are autonomous, but any organization of humans is, is not. So yeah, our employees, you know, it was quite a range of, of reactions. And it's one of those things where when you tell everyone what you're going to do, it's not like suddenly everyone understands and can process it. It's like, there's a lot of explaining and a lot of describing it in different ways. And it takes, it really takes weeks, you know, for the the, the whole company to get a sense of what is actually going on. And during those weeks, there's a lot of anxiety because people just don't understand it. You know, I, I learned about DAOs over the course of six or nine months. I had a very kind of slow introduction to them. And I went from being skeptical and confused to open-minded to embracing it, you know, over many months. So when conveying how this works to employees, you can't expect them to all just suddenly understand it and be excited. I would say some of our employees immediately got it and they had indeed been wanting us to go in this direction for a while. And they were even ahead of, of me and my thinking on it. So they were thrilled and, you know, immediately they got super excited about where Shapeshift was going. Other employees, the whole thing felt just too weird and like, what does that mean? And Understandably, some people would prefer a steady paycheck in a normal like W two role at a <laughs> at a company, and for those types, a, a DAO is a scary thing, and you know they're they're probably not going to get comfortable with it. So we certainly had some of those, and then the majority were really in between those extremes, where they were like, "That sounds weird. It's kind of scary, but I'm open minded and let's explore it and see what what it's about." Several months after we announced it, and we had actually started putting things in place. I think we got quite, I would say we got two thirds of the company to be pretty enthusiastic about what we were doing. And at this point, Shapeshift has no employees, but the Shapeshift DAO has more people working on it than we, than we had employees in our centralized form. Some of those are our prior employees and some of them are totally new people from around the world that have joined the DAO. And uh, how about your Fox tokens? I saw Shapeshift issued tokens. I think the market cap's over 70 million. Is that what people are being paid in? And, you know, what exactly did you do? You know, I just know you go to a workplace and like, what about my health care? What about my transit benefits? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, I know you're kind of a yeah. libertarian looking guy, you know, and that's sort of how people are grown ups. They can figure it out for themselves. But like, you know, how did the tokens come into it? And, you know, how are people buying their, their lunch exactly? Yeah. First, it's a little off topic, but I think it's, 
it's ridiculous that people's people's health insurance and health care is attached to their employment. I think that's a really dangerous problem and practice that people have gotten used to. Someone should never remain at an employer or be employed because if they go somewhere else, they will lose their health insurance. It just causes all sorts of bad, bad consequences. Yeah, the token. So we created our token called Fox a couple of years ago, and we created a billion of them. There's no inflation rate. There's just a billion of these tokens. And we weren't quite sure what to do with them yet. Like we had been conceiving of this token from way back in 2017 when everyone was releasing a token and doing a an ICO. And we thought there was tons of potential, but we were also really wary of how it was generally being done. So we we just moved it forward very slowly. We created the token. We never sold it, still have never sold any of the tokens. And in early 2021, when we started realizing we wanted to decentralize the company, the token was obviously central to how that works. I don't know that you can have a DAO without a token. Maybe maybe it can be done, but the, da- the, the token is really what orients everyone's economic interests in one direction. So just as shares and equity in a normal corporation orient everyone's economic interests around a single unit, and the governance of the corporation is derived from the shares. So too, in a DAO, the token is what everyone orients around, and the token is what ultimately governs its direction. So there are similarities between equity and and tokens, but there's also significant differences, such as immediate liquidity from the very beginning. So these tokens are liquid, they are tradable, everyone at any moment knows the price of these things, there's no barrier to entry or exit that, you know, like in traditional equity to get involved in a company, you have to be an angel investor and, you know, be able to put up 50K or 100K at minimum and know the right people at the right time. In DAOs, anyone in the world with any amount of money, like including $10, can participate in one of these things whenever they wish. And if they don't like how it's going, they can exit whenever they wish, unlike in equity when you know, you can only exit it when there's a liquidity event five or 10 years down the road. So that you get this incredible reduction in friction of participation. And I think that's really where DAOs start to completely overshadow how the, you know, 20th century model of a corporate entity, that, that structure I think is outdated at this point. And a DAO structure, as people become familiar with it, will realize that it's just this incredibly fluid, dynamic economic machine and we're just at the very cutting edge of, of how these things can work. So I confess I'm uh, fascinated by DAOs, Eric, but I want to push you a little bit on governance because I know you think a lot about political theory. And from a distance, you know, I just think there's always going to be leaders, there's always going to be power. So in the case of DAOs, are they sort of like a Catalonia anarchist collector from the 1920s? Or are they run by a benevolent <laughs> tyrant? Like, I just think, you know, human beings being what they are, there's always going to be a power structure and how is that play? And you need to have leaderships. If you don't have a leader, you can't get anything done. So how are all these ideas playing out within DAOs as far as you've seen so far? Great question. So people understand that the corporations have a hierarchy. You know, they have this a CEO and then sort of this pyramid structure with many levels. And when they first hear about DAOs, I think the mistake is to assume that it's the opposite of that. That instead of having a rigid structure, there is no structure that it's completely flat, that there is no hierarchy of any kind. That's not true. That's not how DAOs work. And if you tried to run a DAO like that, you would run into all sorts of problems. So in a DAO, you absolutely have structure. You have leaders. 
but you don't have anything that is rigid, fixed. You don't have a structure that is like permanent and it can change dramatically over time as it needs to. So for example, in corporate shapeshift, I, I was the leader, right? I was the CEO and there were other people in the company that were leaders, but they were all at some level subservient to me. And indeed, I'm subservient to the board and to the shareholders. And that structure is, is very clear. In a DAO, I am a leader within the Shapeshift DAO, but just one of many. And I am not at all higher or more important than some of these other leaders. And indeed, other people than me have been more leaders in the DAO world than I have been. And they weren't, they weren't put in those positions. Like no one declares them to be the leaders. They're not hired by the board. It's generally people that that step up, do good work, and people start following what they're doing. And those people can ask the DAO for resources, right? Someone can come in and say, hey, I'm great at marketing. Let me go do marketing for Shapeshift over the next three months. Give me half a million dollars to do it. I've got my own team, and this is why you should trust me. And people can trust them or not. And if there's a vote to pay that person, the resources will go to them and they will have three months to demonstrate credibility. If they do a great job, they'll probably be able to come back and, and get more money to do marketing for longer. If they do a poor job, they probably won't be voted a budget after those three months. And that person can be anonymous. They can be well-known. They can be from prior Shapeshift Corporation or they can be brand new and you know from anywhere in the world. So it's that, that, that difference in structure and rigidity that is really fundamental. Wow, there's so much there. Uh, of course, we at Decrypt and other partners have been working on our own media DAO, PubDAO. And I mean, it's, it's a whole separate conversation, but it's just, yeah, there's so many challenges. I mean, the hardest thing is just getting people to be as passionate and actively engaged as the people who created it. But that's interesting what you say about it's not structureless. I think some people get that wrong. But let's, yeah. let's shift into regulation, which is such a huge topic. You know, Jeff brought up the Fox token and maybe a good way in with you is that at the end of December, we had you know, a couple of hearings on crypto in the US and specifically one in the Senate on stable coins. It was very interesting to see kind of the agita that certain politicians have about stable coins suddenly. And Jeff wrote a smart column about how it, it's also interestingly falling along certain political lines. Like just by chance, you know, GOP people have sounded friendlier to crypto than Dems have. And uh, you know, I know that you have kind of a lot of excitement about algorithmic stablecoins. I mean, what were your takeaways from that hearing? What are you thinking as you watch politicians try to wrestle with these concepts, especially in some cases the vitriol that we've heard from some of them about the dangers of stablecoins? Are you any more optimistic about how things might play out than you were a few years ago? <laughs> uh, I think if I were to <laughs> capture it in one word, watching the hearing on stablecoin, it would be impotence the, these regulators are they have not recognized that they already lost control they still believe that they regulate how this technology works and indeed they do regulate central centralized entities right so the, the biggest stable coins in the world today are tether and usdc those are central entities they are backed by assets in a bank Regulators can regulate them and, and do whatever they want with those companies without too much headache. But that's that's the stable coin of like 2018 and 2019, right? So they're they're so far behind, they don't realize that the 
if they clamp down on those centralized stablecoins, there are already decentralized stablecoins growing fast and eager to take over that business. Just as when regulators clamp down on centralized exchanges, the rise of decentralized exchanges happens. So too, if they clamp down on the rise of centralized stablecoins, the rise of decentralized stablecoins will will happen. It's just sad to see that they can't they can't imagine a world where the decentralized technology is good. They they see something that must be controlled centrally by them. And it's just such a different paradigm than anyone who's in cryptocurrency, who's in blockchains. There's a there's a magic and a beauty and a newness to this decentralized order of digital asset networks. And the regulators just don't don't get it. So impotence is the word that I felt when I saw that. We'll we'll see what they try to do, but ultimately the market demands good, efficient money, and ultimately immutability is a, a key attribute of that. And so I'm I'm very bullish on decentralized stablecoins, decentralized exchanges, decentralized technology generally. It's it's an amazing time to be alive. Eric, as usual, I can't help but go to the big political picture. I think you're right, contrasting the vitality in the crypto space compared to the kind of ossified nature of American government. I mean, this country can barely build a bridge anymore, and I think that's sort of sad. But at the same time, with stable coins, I think part of the reason regulators are sort of, you know, trying to do something is because they fear the loss of the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. And, you know, I think that's a legitimate fear for all of America's problems right now. I still think it's superior to tyrannies like China and Russia and places like that. And if the we lose the the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, that's going to basically t- completely mess with you know the U.S. economy because it'll be a lot more to borrow. Yes, they shouldn't have borrowed as much as they have in the first place. But I, so I'm so torn. I like crypto; it's so cool. There's energy you don't see anywhere else. But also, I worry we're accelerating the decline of American power and civic society. What do you think about all that? The dollar, the dollar will lose its place as a reserve currency because. It is debased without end. And that would be true with or without cryptocurrency. So I do think that the rise of cryptocurrency and specifically, you know, Bitcoin and and assets that can't be debased may accelerate the process or simply may be the lifeboat as the Titanic sinks into the sea. But it is not appropriate to, to blame cryptocurrency for the demise or to or to be antagonistic to the solution when the problem is occurring. There, there is no way that you get a government currency that isn't just debased into oblivion, right? This government fiat currencies are not a new phenomenon. They've been done for thousands of years and they're always debased into oblivion. So that's not a new, that's not a new issue. And indeed, as the dollar declines and, you know, all these debt instruments or fixed incomes that people rely on for their livelihoods become worth less and less. You get an entire generation or two that was expecting to retire and suddenly can't, or they will retire in poverty. I mean, it's it's horrible. The blame for that goes on the people debasing the currency and who have been debasing it for the last 50 years. The blame doesn't go on cryptocurrency as a solution to that problem. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yeah, that's, I think, very true. And, you know, in particular, look at the inflation. You know, my wife runs a school and the teachers are now making 6% less than they did a year ago because, you know, the government won't stop printing money. But to go back to my earlier question, though, I mean, you are, you know, an American and this company, this country has given you a lot of good things, you know, despite America's many problems, its police state and the rest of it. I just sort of wonder, like, if we risk kind of going into kind of like a new anarchic era if, you know, we accelerate America's decline. I just don't see a lot of models I prefer out there. You know, do you want to live in Iran or China or Russia? Yeah, I think you got to separate America from the U.S. federal government, right? I'm pro-America. I'm pro-American. I like Americans. I like the country. I like many of its institutions. I like much of its culture. I, I dislike the federal government, and I don't believe that it, the source of the the success of America and Americans is primarily from the federal government. So there is a world in which the decline of the U.S. federal government and its power happens at the same time with the rise and the prosperity of the American people. And if there's any country in the world that should understand that principle, it is America. It was founded on the idea that success does not come from the central rule of, of powerful central government but it comes from people and private industry and a and just a you know the the principle of liberty being maximized unfortunately that's been largely forgotten and so if the US government is to decline which i think it must as its money falls apart i don't i don't think that that necessarily means the american people will be worse off i think it, they will end up being better off but there could be a very tumultuous transition period mm. eric when we talk about the government and regulation and what politicians are threatening or what they're doing and, you know, talking about a framework, SEC's Gary Gensler kind of became the new boogeyman of crypto in 2021. If you look at what the other big names in the space, whether it's companies, projects, what have you, what they're doing, their approach, I'd be interested in your kind of assessment there. I mean, you know, you have Binance, which, you know, not a U.S. company, but has really had trouble time and again with regulation. Various jurisdictions across the world have issued statements, you know, they're not licensed to do business here. And yet the people can continue to trade and use it. Then you've had Coinbase, which, you know, went public in a very traditional way, uh, which was always going to be what Brian Armstrong wanted. It was interesting. Some people said, you know, oh, they should have gone public by launching a token. It's like they were never going to do that, but that's what crypto purists wanted. And then FTX, you know, we recently spoke to Sam Bankman Fried. He recently relocated to the Bahamas and they're clearly having their maybe Binance moment of trying to navigate regulation and play nice while also doing what they want. So when you look at the different approaches, and then you've got you guys, you know, doing a DAO, what do you think is the right tack here? And I know that you're kind of pretty negative on the U.S.'s approach versus other countries. I mean, a lot of people think the U.S. has already kind of blown it with crypto. Yeah, the, the U.S. hasn't blown it with crypto, but they certainly are flirting with that idea. New York City certainly blew it with crypto after the bit license. I, I've always been a fan of the Hydra approach, the Hydra strategy to cryptocurrency industry development. I consider myself a purist and I'm I'm in this for the principles of decentralization. And yet I'm a big fan of Coinbase. 
Why is that, right? It's because Coinbase is one of the heads of the Hydra, right? And they're taking a certain strategy, a heavily regulated strategy where they, you know, are, are always doing several steps beyond what the regulators want. They're making a heavily centralized product that looks like a traditional fintech app. And they've achieved immense success with that. And that there's there's also projects that are completely anonymous, that are totally decentralized and everything in between. And I think that's really like the best way for this industry to develop. If it was all Coinbase's, then we haven't really changed anything at all. If it was all, you know, like secret anonymous niche crypto decentralized projects that look shady to regulators, then there's going to be a lot more heat on the industry unnecessarily. And the the brand of Bitcoin as like only used by criminals would be furthered. So I think all of these strategies are helpful together. And that's part of the decentralization that is so strong. So what, what we've done for Shapeshift, I don't think is the right answer for every company. And um, while I'm really excited about you know, this structure as a DAO, I, I wouldn't recommend that every company in the world suddenly tries to be a DAO. Yeah, Eric, Dan and I were just texting. We love the Hydra analogy. I think that's really smart, you know, many ways to do it. But speaking of Shapeshift, you know, I want to, I think, I think we've been remiss not asking what specifically Shapeshift's doing. I think everyone knows you as actually one of the original heads of the Hydra, you know, a legit Bitcoin OG with Satoshi Dice back in the day. And then Shapeshift was sort of a Tumblr mixer, but I confess I'm not completely sure what Shapeshift does now. So can you give us a quick update on like how Shapeshift's evolved in its day-to-day business these days? Yeah, I want to I want to be super clear that Shapeshift was never a Tumblr or mixer. Shapeshift was the only exchange that actually processed every trade on-chain and we published every on-chain trade publicly. So Let's put it this way. Anyone who tried to tumble coins through Shapeshift was very foolish. Mm. Far smarter to get an easy fake ID on the dark web and go to a centralized exchange and run funds through there. That will actually tumble it and you'll break the chain of the transaction. So I want to be clear on that. What Shapeshift was, was a non-custodial exchange. It was meant to solve the problem of centralized custody and the risk in the wake of you know the Mt. Gox collapse. So I wanted to build an exchange where we couldn't lose people's money because we didn't hold it. That was the entire purpose and premise of Shapeshift. So from our beginning in 2014 up until 2021, we were an exchange. That was you know kind of the right way to to think about Shapeshift. Um, but in 2021, we decided to no longer be an exchange and instead integrate the best decentralized exchanges into Shapeshift. So that started with Uniswap in April. No, sorry, Uniswap in January or February of this year or of 2021 and ThorChain later in the year in April. ThorChain allows actually like cross-chain trades to happen in a decentralized way. So we are not an exchange anymore it's better to to think of us as an interface that allows people to interact with decentralized protocols and exchanges and and apps, right? So you would use Shapeshift to trade, but we're not an exchange. You would use Shapeshift to interact with your assets, but we're not a wallet. We're an interface into these different things and we integrate exchanges, we integrate staking protocols, 
We integrate wallets into our interface to make it a smooth, seamless experience, all non-custodial and um, all done with a, with while maintaining privacy, no KYC. We never hold customer funds and we're never an intermediary to anyone's transactions. Well, and in some way, it sounds like the rise of Uniswap was very inspiring to you and maybe influential. Yes. I mean, you know, Shapeshift even before had elements of a DEX, but like other terms in crypto, we weren't really yet calling things DEXs, right? I mean, it's like how NFTs are not new. I mean, CryptoKitties were NFTs, but yeah. then, the, then the moment came for DEXs. People called Shapeshift a DEX, but it, it, it was never a DEX. We were, we were always a centralized company. And when someone would do a trade with Shapeshift, they send in their Bitcoin and we send Ethereum from our own wallet. So we were essentially a market maker or the counterparty to each trade. And we we shared the phenomenon of being non-custodial with a DEX, but we were still centralized. And because we were centralized, we ended up falling under money transmission rules, money service business rules, and in 2018 implemented KYC and all that compliance nonsense, which completely destroyed the business and made our lives hell for a couple of years. But we didn't know we didn't know a solution. Right. We couldn't just like flagrantly break the law and but we couldn't continue to operate a, a project which no one wanted to use anymore. And, you know, in into 2019 and 2020, when I started seeing Uniswap and I used it, it had the magic that that Shapeshift had back in 2014. And I was like, they did it. You know, how how does this work? What are they doing exactly? And what can we learn from it? And essentially, the the TLDR is that a DEX isn't an intermediary, and that means that it is not it does not fall under the Bank Secrecy Act and it, or the entire structure of financial regulation. And so, from that premise, you can actually build all sorts of interesting things. As long as you're not an intermediary, you don't fall under current law. Current law can change, right? So you can't assume it'll always be that way. But that is the superior model. And so hats off to Uniswap for, for pioneering that. They, they weren't the first such decks, but they were the first one that really achieved product market fit and just totally hit it out of the park. And the volumes they do is obliterates the volumes that any centralized exchange was doing just a few years ago. Well, and of course, not being an intermediary doesn't stop the SEC from trying to go out. You know, the SEC has, you know, we're investigating Uniswap and people say, well, who, who, who would they target? I mean, there's no... Yeah, so... It, <laughs> These are all really interesting legal questions. We spent many, many months, many, many hours, millions of dollars talking with lawyers and trying to navigate the nuances of these rules. And um, yeah, the, the SEC can do whatever they want with Uniswap, the company. But ultimately, if Uniswap isn't selling securities, then the SEC has no jurisdiction. Uniswap isn't selling any assets. Uniswap built a decentralized protocol on which buyers and sellers of assets can trade with each other. So um, while the SEC might want to punish Uniswap, I don't believe that they have any any ability to do it. And indeed, today, Uniswap is still running. An important point for those who, who don't realize, you know, several months ago, it was announced that Uniswap was removing some coins and sort of the, the assumption was that was under SEC pressure or under regulatory pressure. The truth is a little more nuanced and it's very important. So Uniswap, the company, runs a front end and that front end interface removed some coins. Uniswap, the protocol, is an Ethereum smart contract and has all those same coins that they always have. 
And indeed, Uniswap, the company, can't remove coins from the Uniswap protocol. And this division between centralized companies and decentralized protocols is where all of the all of the important discussion is happening. This is a fascinating stuff, Eric. So I'm going to go back to Shapeshift for a sec. For the people, including me, I confess, struggling to keep up with the uh, the DeFi world. It's moving so fast. How does Shapeshift compare to One Inch, another entity we hear a lot about? And my impression is it's kind of a dex of dexes, and what you're describing sounds like the same. Is it the same model, One Inch and Shapeshift? It's not. So Shapeshift would integrate One Inch as an aggregator. So you, you have dexes like Uniswap, then you have aggregators like the the zero x matcha aggregator or one inch that aggregate lots of dexes so if you want to do a trade you can run it through one inch and they will distribute the trade wherever price is best shapeshift would integrate either a dex or a dex aggregator and wallets so you would never use one inch as a wallet right you would use it to trade you might use shapeshift as a wallet so you can think of shapeshift as like a an interface where you hold, send, receive, interact, stake, loan, trade assets all in one place. And One Inch or Uniswap are both protocols that we would integrate into the platform. I got it. That's really helpful. There's got to be some big kind of like uh, illustration or, or graphic out there that will clear this <laughs> out. But but anyways, I think I get <laughs> about 50% of it, yeah. which is the start. So go ahead, Dan. Well, and I, I think what all this leads to, and Jeff and I talk about this a lot, even as you describe this so well, Eric, there are certain people, a lot of them, who it just starts to sound too complicated or like too many steps. And maybe that's okay. But you know, I, I always take the view that people in crypto should want the UX to improve. They should want onboard ramps to grow the ecosystem, you know, to have more newcomers come into the space. And, you know, using MetaMask is one thing that's kind of easy enough. But then with certain things now, it's like, well, you know, you use this exchange for one thing and swap it this way, then use your wallet and First, you have to buy ETH on this other exchange, and you go to this other protocol. And for a lot of people, it's, it's just too hard if they're not tech savvy. So as, yeah. as DeFi grows, I mean, do you think that that friction needs to be reduced? That's what we're trying to solve. That's what Shapeshift is trying to solve. The industry is very fragmented. The place you stake is not the place that you send your Bitcoin from. The place you send your Bitcoin from is not the place that you trade. The place you trade is not the place that you bought the Bitcoin from in the first place. And so you just have all these different sites. And if you're really in this industry, you can tolerate some degree of that, but it's a lot. And there's there's scams out there. There's poor products. How do you know, like, if you, if you need to use 12 different services, which of the 500 options do you select as your 12 services? If you put in a lot of time and effort, you can figure it out. But for this to become widely used around the world, it needs to be... Trust, trusted, right? So Shapeshift is a brand that's been around for longer than most in crypto. And that that's a brand that people can trust, both because of our history and reputation, but also because we are non-custodial and open source. From those foundations, we can integrate many of the important protocols that we believe are legitimate and that work well into Shapeshift, and people can use those things more seamlessly. That's what we're trying to do. It's it's a good excuse also to ask you, there was one more big government-related question that I have for you, and I know you have thoughts on Those are my favorite. Bring it on. <laughs> and it's CBDCs, central bank mm-hmm. digital currencies. And you you reminded me because we're, we're talking about you know trying to bring more people in. It's a confusing thing to me. The narrative has gotten louder and louder. You know, Jay Powell even has said, oh, you know, we're, we're looking into it. 
But it's always been strange to me because it's like, who's clamoring for a government-backed cryptocurrency, which defeats the whole point of crypto in the first place? Do you think we'll ever see one? Because China having a digital yuan is is at least spurring the talk about the U.S. doing. Yeah. So CBDCs are like this hot button issue. Um, no one who's in crypto likes C- CBDCs. Like no one who understands the value of cryptocurrency likes CBDCs at all. First point here, I would say people need to realize that fiat currencies are already digital, right? So the dollar is already a digital currency. The euro is already a digital currency. Something like 95 or 98% of, of all fiat is just digital entries in a bank account. So it's not cash. It's not physical. So moving to a central bank digital currency is kind of funny because we sort of already have that. The main difference of a central bank digital currency isn't that it would run on an open blockchain because it won't. It'll run on a controlled, permissioned network, just like the banking system today. It will have all the rules that you know each central bank and each government wants to impose, just like the banking system today. And yet it's even worse because it will have greater surveillance capabilities over all the people using it, right? So it's it's like all the worst aspects of a fiat today in your bank, plus like Orwellian spy surveillance nightmare. And so who is asking, who is clamoring for CBDCs? Only people that want surveillance over their subjects. Those are the only people. Obviously, this is why China is leading the pack in terms of adoption of, of CBDCs. Now, interestingly, in the U.S., you could say that that dollar-backed stablecoins are CBDCs, right? You could you could say that um, USDC and Tether are CBDCs. They certainly fit the definition to some degree. They are a currency of the central bank, and they are digital. However, they operate on, on open networks, and even though they are not permissionless, they are far better than the banking system, and people are actually using them and, and enjoying that. The real question for the U.S. government is, they know they need like a CBD strategy, CBDC strategy. They can either go the way of China and make this Orwellian, super centralized CBDC world, or they can be a little bit more free market about it and acknowledge that private companies like Circle, like Tether, have already created a CBDC that's better than anything that they would create. And they can simply embrace and at least permit the growth and usage of those stablecoins. I think that's probably how it will go. You know, I've lost a lot of faith in the U.S. government, obviously, but I do. they're not as Orwellian or desiring of central surveillance as China. And I think they may realize that they already have a lead in CBDCs with these dollar-backed stablecoins. And to embrace and permit those, I think, is the smartest thing that the U.S. government could do. Uh, well put, Eric. I like that people in crypto don't like CBDCs. I think that's a very fair description. No one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyways, we are about out of time. Fascinating discussion. But I'd like to end just sort of on a more personal note. I mean, you've had a hell of a career in crypto for 10 years. So what's next for Eric Voorhees in 2022 on a professional and a personal level? Yeah, I I just plan to be a leader among many within the Shapeshift DAO. It's been a long time since I was so excited about where Shapeshift is going and the structure it's in and, and my part in that. And so I'm I'm thrilled with the DAO, how it's gone so far, and I'm I'm just gonna help move that forward. You know, it's a it's a grand vision to build the open source, you know, financial interface for the entire world. And um that's what we're trying to do. So I won't have, you know, a kind of a nine to five 
W2 job anymore. And that's cool. I'll just continue contributing to Shapeshift and um, doing this kind of thing and trying to preach the gospel of, of cryptocurrency to the world. To me, that seems like a pretty idyllic way to spend the next couple of years. Preach the gospel. I like it. <laughs> so we try to do it in a way at Decrypt, or at least mm -hmm. help and educate and welcome newcomers to the space. Uh, Eric, great chat. We love talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Happy to be on the show. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, take care. Thank you, Eric. This has been GM from Decrypt. I'm Dan Roberts. And I'm Jeff Roberts. GM is a Decrypt podcast produced by Red Rock Music. Our executive producer is Red Yoakum. Our associate producer is Emma Martins. And our audio engineer is Enrique Inahosa. For more from Decrypt, go to decrypt.co or download our mobile app. Subscribe and review us wherever you listen, and we'll meet you back here next time for more crypto conversation. GM. GM.